Hi, this is Larry H. Russell. Thank you for downloading another edition of Celtics Beat. Today's episode is being brought to you by our sponsors, the home of online video tutorials, lynda.com and Casper. Casper's mattresses are premium mattresses for a fraction of the price because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. And to get $50 off any mattress purchase at casper.com, visit casper.com slash Celtics and enter promo code Celtics. Welcome into Celtics Be Presented this week by Linda and Casper. This is Jared Weiss filling in for Larry H. Russell, and this is going to be fun. I sat down over Skype with Kevin O'Connor from SB Nation, and we really went into the Celtics, both how they look over in Europe and how we think they're going to be looking this year stateside. Now, before we get to all the fun stuff, we have to talk to you about Tick IQ. Over the past two months on Celtics Beat, there's been a contest to give away a pair of tickets to see the Celtics open the season against the Philadelphia 76ers. First off, on behalf of LHR and CLNS Radio, we'd like to thank everyone who participated. But let's cut right to the chase. The winner of the tickets is Seablade24. Congratulations and have fun at the game. I will probably see you there somewhere. And if you miss out on the contest or also want to check out more games, there's not a better place to purchase tickets than Tick IQ. TIQIQ.com. They just released a fantastic rewards-based mobile ticket buying app. These guys already have the cheapest tickets for all Boston sports. And now with their mobile app, you can save up to 10% more on tickets to any live event. You can set price alerts to be notified when tickets within your price range become available, as well as see all the top deals for games at the Garden, Gillette, and on the road. They aggregate all ticket sellers on one platform and have the most competitive prices out there. Head to the Apple App Store to download the Tick IQ app and start saving today. That is T-I-Q-I-Q. Use the promo code BOSTON for 10% off of your first purchase. All right, before I start rambling, let's get to the Facebook question of the week, which is presented by Harry's.com. Wake up to Harry's, a better way to shave with cost-effective razors and products designed to give you the highest quality shaving experience possible. Say goodbye to money going down the drain with arm and leg prices for drugstore razor blades and sign up for an account with harrys.com and get a starter's kit for $10, which includes a razor, shaving cream, or gel, and a month's worth of blades. For again all of $10 by simply mentioning Celtics upon checkout. That's Celtics at Harry's.com. So now our question of the week. What did you think of the Celtics trip to Europe? How did they look? Leave your comments on the Facebook page. I will be reading them and critiquing them very heavily, so I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say. So from my perspective, they are looking good. I really love what I'm seeing offensively with David Lee. They are incorporating Lee into pretty much every play that they can run uh, when he's out there, especially in the first quarter of the Real Madrid game. I love the way that he's operating as a high post passer. It's something that the team just didn't have consistently last year. They, they have guys like Olenek and Solander that are decent passers, have good court vision, have soft hands, and have a nice touch with both hands. But with Lee, you're getting a guy that is just such a phenomenal passer. I know he's a different player than this guy, but David West is someone that kind of filled a similar role for Indiana while he was there, where he was someone that could 
work out of the high post. He could pass to anybody, whether they were cutters, doing rub. He could be a rub screen guy. He could be a dribble handoff guy. He could also step back and hit pretty much any shot that he wanted. And David Lee has a lot of those similar characteristics. And to put him on this team, I know he doesn't fit the model that the Golden State Warriors were going for last year, but this Celtics team, while they are a pace and space team that wants to be shooting threes, they're not necessarily the Golden State Warriors. They have a different group of they have a different group of players that don't have that kind of skill set. And obviously we're comparing them to the world champs here. But they don't have the kind of guys that are more spot up shooters like the Golden State has. They have a lot of guys that um, they have some dynamic players and guys like Thomas and Smart and maybe even Rogier. They do have RJ Hunter, who probably could fill a similar role to what Clay Thompson and Harrison Barnes provided last year, a couple years down the road. And I do think he's going to have a very limited role, but effective role with this team this year. But they're a team that still is really relying on all sorts of actions and motion offense in the half court. And then, of course, pushing transition and trying to find. Uh, trying to just kind of attack the defense while it's uh, before it's turned around and gotten set on its heels. So when you have a guy like David Lee, because he's such a good passer and because he can shoot the ball from anywhere inside 15 feet, and because he's a smart player, he is able to open up a lot more opportunities for the Celtics offensively that they just didn't have last year after Rondo left. Because while they were better without Rondo, their offense was a little bit more limited in what types of plays it could run. It couldn't run stuff that was as complex last year after Rondo was gone, especially after Jeff Green was gone. They were just, they were playing so much harder and they had guys that could score better. Obviously having Isaiah Thomas made a huge difference and they were able to play that up-tempo pace the way that they wanted to. And with and not basically not having a guy that couldn't shoot the ball at the point. So that was a huge advantage for them last year. I love the idea of them being able to pass out of the high post this year and being able to run more effective half-court sets, and David Lee's going to play a huge role in that. Another huge takeaway from this trip to Europe was Terry Rozier's shooting. Rozier is showing that not only is he a potentially deadly spot-up shooter, down the road. I mean, right now he's on fire. I'm not expecting that to continue, but he is also someone that can shoot off the dribble and they want Marcus Smart to be that guy. And that remains to be seen. He's shown that he can be a decent spot up shooter, but shooting off the dribble is an art form and requires great skill. And Rogier is showing early signs that he's going to be able to do that. And that's really exciting because with him, it was mostly about being, a, at least when he was drafted, it was about being obviously a glove defender, a transition player that could attack the rim, and he has great length and athleticism, but we weren't really expecting much perimeter scoring ability from him yet. But he's flashing some signs of that here in the preseason, and it's going to be really exciting to see what you know what actually comes of it, especially in the regular season, because he's, he's good enough to play 10 minutes a game on this team, and so is RJ Hunter, and we'll get to him in a sec. But... Rogier is someone that he has this thing that he does really well, which is ball hawking defense and then running the floor like hell and being athletic, you know, and that's good enough. And he's good enough at it that he can earn himself some playing time. But if he wants to be the rotation guy, he's got to be able to hit his shots and coming out of the draft and coming out of summer league. I wasn't expecting him to be that guy, but seeing the very, very small sample size that we've had so, so far, I'm having the the growing expectation that he's going to be able to be a bit of a corner shooter for this team, and that would be massive. And then on the other hand, hand, R.J. Hunter is someone that looks like he could shoot from all over the court, but what I love about him is he is so intelligent 
and he's so savvy and he works really hard and he he's a complete package guy and it's going to be a while until he shows it but he looks like someone that could turn into a, a good starting shooting guard and be a playmaker for a team and the fact that they got him at 28 is still is is as bewildering as taking Rogier at 16 on draft night was. Obviously, from what we've seen out of Rogier, taking him taking him at 16 isn't as shocking anymore. Now that we're getting to know him and we're seeing the kind of things he can do well out there. But Hunter at 28, it still blows my mind, and we'll find out why he fell there, or we'll find out why it was an absolute steal. It's going to be interesting. So our interview with Kevin is being brought to you by DraftKings. Your season-long fantasy football team may be going strong. Mine is not, though. But you don't have to wait until Week 16 to get paid. Put your fantasy skills to the test every week this season at DraftKings.com, America's favorite one-week fantasy football site. With one-week fantasy, there are no season-long commitments. If you got an injured player, no problem. I got plenty of injured players on my team. It's like a new season every week, so you're never stuck with the same players. And get this, DraftKings is crowning a new millionaire every week of this season. That means you could turn your love of football into the payday of a lifetime. Just pick your players, pile up the points, and pick up your cash. It's that easy. And that's it. Believe me, you've never experienced football like this before. This isn't fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Welcome to the big time. So hurry to DraftKings.com now. Use promo code NEWENGLAND and play for free with your first deposit in this Sunday's $1 million fantasy football contest, where first place takes home hundred grand. Enter New England for free entry now, only at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. So we're here with Kevin Michael O'Connor, and I'm the host, Jared Michael Weiss. Kevin writes for SB Nation, Celtics blog, about.com. Works at Comcast Sportsnet. Is there any other affiliation I'm, I'm not thinking of right now? Uh, those are the main sites I write for. <laughs> Little stuff for Vantage. And Vantage, of course. Vantage, yeah. I mean, how could I forget Vantage? Um, it's you're very you're a very busy guy, and you watch as much film as anybody covering this team. And I want to start by talking about how they looked on film in these first two games here. And I had the unique opportunity to get to watch them in replay and get the DVR through the games really quickly, which I don't usually get to do, and that was a lot of fun. Um, but looking at this team and kind of the microcosm that is two preseason games in Europe while everybody's fighting off the flu, what was your impression of how the new guys were fitting in and how the system seems to be progressing closer to the model that Stevens has been talking about for the past couple of years? I, I think back to a question Abby Chen asked David Bradley after the first game. And she asked him, do you think you guys are ahead? And Avery's answer was, yeah, we're ahead. No, no, we're actually behind. And he caught himself because it was like, coach coach wouldn't want me to say we're ahead, even though I really feel that way. So he said we're, we're behind. And when I look at the Celtics, I think they actually are a little bit ahead right now. When you think about all the new bodies, the rookies, the veterans, David Lee, Amir Johnson, even though he played only one game, I think things look like they're kind of clicking offensively. And for the system to be working so efficiently, so early, granted it's against European teams, I think that's encouraging from the standpoint that they may get off to a quick start despite having uh, so much, so many new players on the roster. So it is a good thing for them so far. And, and the one thing that was the big piece there offensively is that 
they have a bunch of new bigs, and the bigs are fitting in really well offensively mm-hmm. so far. And especially um, Amir Johnson looked great moving off the ball in the first game, and I think it's something that we're kind of expecting to come from him this year. But the way that they ran the offense through David Lee in the Real Madrid game was just gorgeous. It was like it was like a blend of up tempo tra- like Suns ball with a little bit of that kind of '90s high post passing flair to it. Mm-hmm. It was almost as if like the like the running gun Suns and the Memphis Grizzlies morphed into a beautiful David Lee conundrum there, mm-hmm. and they, Lee is such a good passer, and the way that he's just he's not racing the ball up court when he gets rebounds, but he's able he's able to steadily dribble the ball up court. He actually had a really nice behind the back pass when the I think it was Gustavo Ayon tried to press him at half court. I mean Lee's composure on the ball brings a dimension to the Celtics front court that they haven't had yet because he's the first guy that they had that's really good and smart with the ball, and he can really keep his head up while he has the ball. Definitely. Lee Lee's entering his, his 11th year, and he's definitely going to be the best passing big on the roster. Granted, I think the Celtics have better passing bigs than the average NBA team, whether it's Sullinger or Olenek, but Lee's on another level. He's been doing it for a long time, and whether he's doing it off defensive rebounds, pushing it up himself, or in the half court, he's a, someone that I think Brad Stevens can trust to run the offense through, and early on, I think that's why... We're seeing Isaiah with one unit as the primary facilitator, the primary scorer, and Lee with the other unit as the primary uh, scorer and facilitator. So, as you said, they're putting Lee in positions where he can either score or he can make plays with a pass. And one play that comes to mind for me is they they it looked like they were going to run the typical dribble handoff to Avery Bradley, but Bradley cut towards the basket, Lee from the high post gave him a perfect bounce pass for a layup. And granted, Brandon Bass was a really good longtime player for the Celtics. He cannot pass like David Lee. He doesn't have division to anticipate plays like that. So I think it just opens up a whole new level of options for the Celtics offensively in the half court. And as you alluded to uh, in terms of transition offense, Lee is very, very good. It's uh, He's not Charles Barkley going coast to coast, as he joked that he doesn't have to be, but he, he kind of just moves methodologically up and down the court, and he makes good, accurate passes at the right time. He doesn't take risks necessarily, and I think that adds a new dimension to the transition offense, which could use it this year. Yeah, and there—I mean, there's a unique compromise in switching from Bass to Lee as that important kind of rock as, at the four position. And that when you had Bass in there last year, you knew that he was going to be a good low post defender. He was going to be active, and he could get you a few mid range jumpers a game. Um, with Lee, it's a little bit different. So with Lee, he's a guy that can get these—I'd say he's as good of a defensive rebounder as Bass, maybe even a little bit better from a technical standpoint, but. He's someone that he can get the rebound and immediately turn it into transition. And same thing where on the in the half-court offense, he's a guy that you can get him the ball and he can immediately move the ball somewhere else. But with Bass, they were stunting transition because he would he's one of those bigs that he gets the rebound and then he glues his pivot foot for the to the floor <laughs> looking for an outlet. And and he and he if his uh, if the primary ball handler is getting pressed at full court, then Brandon's in trouble. And there were a lot of plays last year where they almost had uh, they almost got down to the uh, half court turnover because he couldn't get it across the timeline in time because he wasn't ready to put the ball on the floor. Now transition doesn't always have to be a fast break, and that's something that I think people are starting to learn, or the general public is starting to learn over the last couple of years as more teams go up tempo. That being an up tempo team is more about just 
kind of not really having any down points in your in your offensive transitions. Just being able to get the ball and just continue to move up court and get there before the defense can turn around and set. And that was something that they had trouble with last year, and it led to a lot of turnovers. And especially early in the season, they were getting they had so many twenty turnover games that it was killing them. But now. With especially with Lee out there, and Amir Johnson can do this too, and now Solinger is saying that he's going to be doing this more, that they have at least three guys that can get a rebound and immediately just start moving the ball up steadily so that they don't have to go on these huge fast breaks. They don't have to make as risky passes to continue to be in transition. And that's one of the huge improvements that they make, and they might have to compromise interior defense a little bit, but it's a pretty worthy compromise. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, the Celtics last year, they obviously liked to push the ball. They were ninth in possessions, according to Synergy and Transition, but they were tied for last in efficiency scoring and trans- transition. And that's partially because they'd pull up for mid-range, but that that could could have been due philo- to philosophy. Like Avery Bradley didn't know, oh, I should pull up from three. Now he does. But I think it also could be due to the fact that, as you said, Bass, when he got a rebound, he'd just be glued to the floor. Whereas now, I'd say every big on that roster is a good passer. Sullinger can do it. He's a good outlet passer. Amir Johnson's very good. Kelly Olenek, he can take the ball up too. And now David Lee is definitely the best on the roster. So if Lee grabs 400 400 rebounds this year on the defensive end, that's another 400 chances to get the ball up quicker compared to Bass getting his 350 or so defensive rebounds last year. And it's a subtle difference, but those subtle differences are could be the difference between being a 45-win team or a 50-win team. Because if you lose a game because of a second-quarter possession that you missed a transition opportunity, then it hurts you. Those subtle differences really do, in the end, accumulate and become the difference between being the 8-seed or the 4-seed. And you're talking about, about, I mean, if it's four, let's say it's, I mean, it's not absolutely that Brandon Bass didn't allow for transition every time, of but for the most part, he, he stunted transition. So you're talking about almost five extra transition possessions every single yeah. game, as mm-hmm. opposed to especially much higher risk turnover plays. Cause when Bass got into trouble on those offensive rebounds, there were a lot of turnovers trying to find yep. an outlet guy. So you're, you're improving. You're getting four X, at least four extra possessions in which you're in control offensively. Let's say you score on three of those. That's an extra six points yep. a game. At least that's mm-hmm. massive. A six point swing in points. And this obviously is very flawed in analytics right now. Of course. We're <laughs> I mean, that's, you're talking about going from a, from a team that can put up points at a decent level to being one of the leading scoring teams in the league. If they're able to do that. Yeah, well, think about the importance of transition. The Celtics scored 1.02 points per possession last season, according to Synergy. I think that's better than most teams and most half-court play types. Not looking at the data, but that's probably better than a lot of teams in the half-court. And that's because transition leads to easy baskets. It leads to layups. It leads to dunks. It leads to open three-pointers off of uh, driving kicks. So you're getting easy opportunities. So if you're getting that extra four or five chances per game, then you're in good shape because it's going to lead to some easy opportunities. So shots aren't always going to fall. Sometimes you're going to get called for a charge on your drive, but the opportunity's there, and that's what you need. And also they have more guys that can shoot the ball from downtown this year. And a, a big one is Avery Bradley. And you wrote... As always, a really good piece over at Celtics Blog about the way that Bradley is starting to 
think and act more like a three-point shooter, especially with the side dribble. And that's, I think, the biggest change that we're seeing. So expound on that more. Yeah, I thought it, <clears throat> at media day I asked him about shooting more threes, and he gave kind of the line of the day, I thought, for me personally, because I, I think that's an important thing for the Celtics. He said, long twos aren't as good as a three-pointer. And when he said that, I was like, finally. And didn't Some... Brad Stevens say that too? I think either you and I asked Brad about that, and I think they said the same thing. I, I think you asked yeah. Brad, and he gave a, something similar about the, the importance of shooting more threes. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, it's important because Bradley was one of the most frequent uh, long two-point shooters in the league last year. So if he just changes his his play type a little bit, whether it's – well, if Stevens changes his play types, and I think we're starting to see that earlier this uh, in the preseason. So instead of running those dribble handoffs that typically lead to two-pointers for him, and that's fine. It's a solid play. Keep him in the corner like they're doing, and he shot seven of eight from three in the preseason, and granted, he's not going to sustain that rate. But he's had success from that area in the past. We saw when I think Ray Allen was out in... 2012, 2012 uh, Avery Bradley really turned it on. He was getting those backdoor cuts, uh, open three-pointers in the corner. And he was like so, the best corner three-point shooter in the league for like the second half of the year. I yeah. Think it was, if it were from the right corner, yeah. Definitely. It's just crazy and, to think that it was Avery Bradley. Definitely. And I, I think I looked before I wrote that article you mentioned. For his career from the corner, he's a slightly below the league average. But if you – one thing that was interesting when I looked at his above-the-break shots uh, in an article I wrote last season, um, the, the more he shot from that area, the better he was. And granted, that could be the type of thing where, oh, he got better, that's why they're giving him more shots. But it could also be the type of thing where he got more comfortable with the shot and his efficiency improved. So maybe if Bradley is just jacking up threes from the corner he'll shoot above 40% from the area. And that could be a deadly shot for the Celtics, like the corner three is for most teams. And I mean, that's so last year, Bradley had to take over so many ball handling responsibilities that he didn't get to play out of the corner as much, even with uh, Jeff Green gone, which I actually thought when Jeff Green left, he was a guy that played out of the corner a ton. I thought Bradley would get to do that more. But if Marcus Smart is going to take more ball handling responsibility, that frees up Avery to go play the elbow and swing between the elbow and the corner much more. It's going to open that up for him. And we're seeing in the preseason that he's getting back to doing those cuts that he's so good at. I know you had you you had a, um, probably his best move from last year, which was a V cut that he pulled off. Where you know Bradley's got good footwork when he's not on the ball. I'm not so sure about how great his footwork is on the ball, but he's really good off the ball. His footwork, and he's the kind of guy that can he could be a good run uh, route runner when he's off the ball, and he's. And that's what makes you a really effective off-ball shooting guard is someone that can fake guys out, can run guys in the picks and do stuff like that. And Bradley's really good at that, and he kind of got away from it last year because he had to be more responsible for taking care of the ball. So if he's really freed up this year, that's where the big improvement comes from. Yeah, I think that speaks to his speed. He's such a quick, fast-twitch player. He's, I mean, if he can, if he can read a play, which he can't, he's a smart player. He can fake guys out just like he has so many times in the past in those cuts from the corner because it looks like he's coming in for a handoff from the mm-hmm. big, but then he cuts quick to the basket and it's too late. Either the big's going to help down and that could open up another player or Bradley's going to have a wide open layup like he has. 
So putting him in the corner is another advantageous position for him compared to always shooting from mid-range. So one thing I'm looking forward to seeing uh, is if they extend that dribble handoff play to the three-point line. I'd like to see them try to get him to shoot threes from above the break and see if he can knock those down. Because I, I feel like he can. He said he's worked on the shot this summer, so we'll have to see that, which we didn't so far. Yeah, well, and, you know, his his vertical on his jumper looks like another three to four inches higher. Maybe he's healthier this year, but he looks, he's shooting differently to me this year, at least in the three games, if you include that scrimmage that we saw, uh, that we've been able to watch him in. He is elevating higher, and his, his wrist snap looks, looks a lot more crisp than it did last year. And... Yeah, I'd... oh, good, good. Uh, I didn't make it to the scrimmage, unfortunately. I, I saw a movie that night. I mean, it's a good time. Yeah, yeah. The movie would have been just as well. <laughs> we 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 bought tickets months ahead of time because uh, it was which, a one day movie. Uh, Roger Waters, The Wall. Oh, and it wasn't worth it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I yeah. saw that in concert a couple of years ago, and uh, it was nice to relive some of the memories seeing it in the movies. Yeah, I remember you telling but, me about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So back to back to those <laughs> back to basketball. <laughs> But I did miss out on a practice, and I, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, I'll have to look at that more closely, especially at, at one of the games this year. And, I mean, of course, that could it could look – he could be uh, kind of running off that fresh preseason energy. And mm-hmm. it could – I felt like last year it, it seemed like his athleticism waned a little bit over the course of the year. And, I, I mean, I'm sure he was playing hurt, as are most guys. And most guys lose a little bit of steam throughout the course of the year. But – He's been in the league long enough that he shouldn't really be hitting the wall anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, still, he's only 26 years old, I think. Or no, he's 24 years old, actually. 24. He'll be 26 when his contract is up. So he's a young guy. I mean, he's not quite in his prime yet. He's still improving. But he is at the stage where, as you said, he should be past the point where fatigue really hits him at the end of the year. But part of that was, again, due to the role yep. he, he had for the first time in his career in the second half. Uh, he had to handle ball handling duties, and towards the end of the year, he had to turn it up again on defense. So that's something new to him, especially after the Jeff Green trade occurred in January. And that Jeff Green trade put a lot of pressure on a lot of guys to step up because even though we were all disappointed with Jeff Green was doing, he still filled an important role and still picked up, for instance, the most important wing player on the on the opposing team a lot of the time if they were above six foot five. And with him gone, they had you know a lot of guys have to step up, and Jay Crowder obviously was the biggest one. And I'm really bullish on Jay. I thought he was phenomenal down the stretch last year. The way that he changed the tone of the team. I know Jay, uh, obviously Isaiah Thomas gets a ton of credit for the way things changed last year. And he deserves it. I think Jay Crowder has emerged as the really important vocal leader that's been gone since Kevin Garnett left. Yeah, Jay Crowder certainly sets the tone out there on the floor. I think... You know, we're seeing Celtics fans just love him so fast, uh, so quickly. Ever since the Jeff Green trade happened, Jay Crowder's gotten an increased role, and immediately the tone changed in the team. Because Crowder brings what Green didn't, and it's just that, that attitude, that nastiness, especially on the defensive end. He can defend all five positions offensively. He works hard. He can hit open shots. Granted, as he said, he shot a percentage less than what he would like to going forward. And he said he worked on a shot. So if he's hitting threes at 34 or 35% this season, then the Celtics could have a serious bargain 
to the uh, considering the contract I signed him to. All right, let's take a quick commercial break, and then we'll be right back with our interview with Kevin O'Connor here on Celtics Beat. Cruise back to the 80s on the first ever 80s cruise. That's right, seven days in the most radical party to ever hit the high seas with a totally awesome lineup of artists that define the sound of the decade. Join Huey Lewis and the News, Richard Marks, Starship, Cool and the Gang, A Flock of Seagulls, Modern English, Naked Eyes, Tiffany, Wang Chung, and Jesse's Girl, the ultimate 80s party band, and the original MTV VJs, Nina Blackwood, Mark Goodman, and Alan Hunter. As we cruise to exotic ports of core like Grand Turk, San Juan, St. Thomas, and the private island of Half Moon Key, we're going all out by building an 80s video game arcade with Donkey Kong, Mario Brothers, and of course Pac-Man, showing movies like Ferris Bueller and Pretty in Pink, and there'll even be a VJ contest. Don't forget to pack your best 80s looks because we're having a prom night, a movie costume party, pajama party, and neon beach party. You can't miss this. Sailing from February 28th through March 6th, 2016 for the most gnarly vacation ever. For more information, log on to the80scruise.com or call 844-384-8080. Welcome back to Celtics Beat, which today is being presented by Linda and Casper. Casper's mattress is an obsessively engineered mattress using two technologies, latex and memory foam, which come together for better nights and brighter days. It's a comfortable mattress that has just the right sink and bounce. A Casper mattress provides long-lasting comfort and support, and you can buy it easily online and completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and painless returns within a 100-day period, so you don't have to lie down in a showroom. Get a Casper mattress for $500 for a twin or $950 for a king-size mattress. And you can save an additional $50 as one of our audience members by going to casper.com slash Celtics and entering the promo code Celtics. So let's get back to talking to Kevin. So I didn't get to talk to many people in person, at least, when Jay got signed. He got signed for, on average, $7 million a year this offseason. When mm-hmm. I got to media day, I was asking people about it, and everybody was shocked that he got paid so little. And I wanted to know what you think, because I thought that he could be pushing for $10 million based on the way he played at the end of the year. But before that, he hadn't done a ton in his career to merit more than like $5 million or $7 million or so. But just the potential that he – it wasn't like he flashed up potential. It was the way that he changed everything and the way that he played – and the way that he continued to improve, his, dri- his driving and dribbling ability got better. His shooting isn't back to where it was when he was uh, early in his career, but there's potential for it, of course. Mm-hmm. And he's a phenomenal defender, and I love that you said that he could defend all five positions because that's the kind of guy I think of him as. I know he could definitely do the two, three, and four, but if you have to put him on a five or a one for a few minutes in the game, I think yeah. he could handle it. But yep. I thought he was a $10 million player. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I, I talked to someone at the end of the season. I, I said, oh, I wonder what Crowder could get in the open market. And I was like, maybe he'll get $10 million. And the person said to me, no way. There's no way he's going to get offered $10 million. He might not even get 6 And I was like, are you serious with the cap rising? Of course he's going to get of at least course. six. Yeah. And and he ended up getting $7 mil per year. And I think it's a little bit low, too. Because if I, if I were a team out there looking at Crowder, I'm thinking that this guy might not be Draymond Green, but maybe he can kind of be a Green-esque player, whereas he's got the versatility on defense, he can hit open jumper, jumpers, he can handle the ball a little bit, he can make plays for others a little bit. He's not 
spectacular player. He's not a superstar. He's not LeBron. But if Draymond Green were on the Celtics last year, I'm not quite sure that people would view him in the same light as they did when he's surrounded by the guys he was on Golden State. So Crowder could be that guy. He just hasn't been in that situation. And I'm not saying he is Draymond Green, but he's got similar qualities in terms of his defensive versatility and his skills on offense, which aren't spectacular, but they're very solid all around. So for $7 million a year for five years, that's going to take him to, I think, his well, he'll be 30 when the contract is up. That's really, really good value for the Celtics. Well, so that begs the question, would you rather pay Draymond Green twice as much money or even more than twice as much money than Jay Crowder? Um, if I'm Golden State, I would. But sure. if, if I'm other teams, I'd rather pay Jay Crowder $7 million and use that money elsewhere. But, I mean, Green's a great player, but situation matters, and we don't really know. That was even one of the concerns for Green People would talk about, oh, if he leaves Golden State Warriors, how will he look elsewhere? Well, of course, that goes for any player. Yeah. Maybe Jay Crowder would look like a star if he played for Golden State last year. Who really knows? And that's and that's the exact question: is that you know guys that are on the championship caliber teams, they're the ones that get paid huge. Damari Carroll, another very similar player, and I think we can clearly see the the areas in which Damari Carroll is a better player than Crowder. He's a better shooter. Definitely. He's better on the ball, but they're incredibly similar players, and it goes beyond the very similar hairstyle also. But, <laughs> you know, and Damari got the max from Toronto yep. to fill a similar role where he's a three that's also going to be playing a lot of the four. And I actually, when they signed him, I thought that's to put him as a starting four, and it looks like they're probably going to go for it, especially with Amir Johnson leaving and with, let's be frank, probably a new coach coming in the next year if they don't win 50-plus games. And yeah. hopefully they're going to win 50-plus games. It's interesting you bring up Carroll because he's one of the guys that came to mind to me when people said, oh, the Celtics don't have a guy that'll be a starter on a championship contender. And if you said that about Damari Carroll in the summer of 20, 2014, people would have said to you, oh, Carroll's not a guy that you can rely on to be a starter, but he actually he turned into one. So maybe Crowder is one of those guys. Maybe Bradley's one of those guys. But it's hard to predict where and when a player will improve because just four years ago, if you look at Damari Carroll's stats when he was with Utah, he wasn't really that great of a three-point shooter. I think he shot around 32 33% maybe, and then boom, he just took off with Atlanta. He improved significantly. So those things can happen. It's It's just hard to predict, but that's what you're paying for when you give a guy... $35 million, you're banking on Crowder, the guy, to improve as a player. I want to use this as a segue into something that we wanted to talk about, which is the Carmelo system, which projects potential improvement. That's a system put together by Nate Silver and the team over at 538, affiliated with ESPN. And they've come up with basically a projected war system, wins above replacement for NBA players. And it's produced some very interesting results, and the Celtics version just got a lot of uh, publicity and just came out the other day. And Chris Forsberg from ESPN put that together. And we're looking at the projections for the different players on the team. Marcus Smart is the number one comparison that this model put out for him was James Harden. And obviously, if you look at them at first <laughs> glance, there's a lot of there are a lot of similarities there. But Marcus Smart and going to James Harden is a massive transition. Do you think it's – is it a viable comparison? <laughs> no, not really, to be honest. I, I don't see it. Um, smart 
just a different type of player. Uh, offensively, Harden is a significantly better ball handler. Uh, came into the league a better shooter, I, I think. Smart, granted, Smart exceeded our expectations there too, but that, again, talks about predictive models. Nobody thought Smart would shoot 35% from three last year. So I don't really buy that comparison. Um, I think maybe in terms of the improvement, the tra- trajectory could be similar. Maybe Smart, if he has significant increase in playing time or usage, maybe his uh, volume stats could improve like Harden's did because early in his career, of course, he played fewer minutes playing behind guys like Durant and Westbrook. He came off Oklahoma City's bench, and then when he went to Houston, he finally got the superstar role that he deserved. So maybe Smart's the type of guy where if he's given the keys to the car, he becomes a future all-star, as they label him. Um, another problem with the Harden comparison is the defense. The fact that Smart is arguably one of the best defensive perimeter defenders I've personally ever seen, and I think a lot of people would agree with that. So to compare him to James Harden, who is not very good defender, uh, that's kind of a bit of a stretch for me. Yeah. So uh, James Harden was one of my favorite players coming into the draft in like the last decade, and I was I was actually kind of shocked when the Thunder gave up on him because I've always looked at James Harden and thought this guy's on the precipice of being an MVP, and. I've, I felt that way ever since Harden came into the league. I thought that he had the IQ, the drive, and the just the unreal natural skill to have the yo-yo control of the ball. And he had a, he just had such an ease to shoot from everywhere on the court. And he had that coming into the league, and then he dramatically approved upon it. But you could see the inkling of it uh, when he got into the league. With Marcus Smart, I don't see that just that natural control of the ball and uh, from both a shooting and ball handling perspective. And he is improving and he improved over the course of last year. He got more comfortable over the course of last year. And we're seeing some improvement now coming into year two, but he doesn't have the natural, he doesn't have the natural command that we see with other, that we see with Harden and other great players uh, offensively coming into the league. Now the defense makes up for it a ton and the difference between Marcus Smart and James Harden defensively, even though I know Harden did technically improve last year, he's still James Harden defensively. Mm-hmm. I say the difference offensively is pretty comparable to the difference offensively. So they're not going to be similar players necessarily, uh, even though they play in a similar, somewhat similar style. The difference in their ability and talent is definitely dramatically different on each end of the court. But to say that Marcus Smart couldn't be as impactful as James Harden on an overall level I think he could get to the kind of, not like the level that Harden was last year where he was like a bona fide MVP of the league, but just to be a a consistent all-star, I think is definitely within Marcus Smart's ceiling. Oh, I think so too. Um, Harden certainly is an MVP level scorer and he's, that's why he's in the MVP conversation. I, I don't think many people would look at him the same way if he was a, if he was the best perimeter defender in the league and he scored 17 points per game, I don't think he'd be talked about as an MVP. But that Which gets is a damn through. shame, by the way. Yeah, it is a damn shame. It really is because defense is undervalued in, in the public light. People care too much about the volume stats. But that's another conversation. In terms of overall impact, yeah, sure. Smart, you know, for factoring in defense, certainly could make a similar overall impact as Harden. And that's why it is encouraging to see guys like Harden, Paul George, 
Joe Johnson, Baron Davis on that list. Chauncey Billups, I think, was in the top 10 comparable players. To see names like that for smart, it's a good thing to see. Okay, but what about at the bottom there? So we were talking about before we started recording about Terry Rogier's projections. And this system has Rogier projected as the second worst defender on the team. And there's a, and even in the in the in the article where Nate Silver explains the Carmelo system, he does kind of cop to the fact that college statistics are really hard to project, and especially from a defensive perspective. <laughs> but you would imagine that there would have to be some sort of adjustment when it spits out, or at least in the model, when it spits out Terry Rozier as the second worst defender on the Boston Celtics, where everyone that's watched Rozier through the, for the last couple of years and in this preseason can see that he is a very talented on-ball defender. And he's smart enough to be a good off-ball defender even early in his career. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, I think he was only ahead of James Young and right behind R.J. Hunter and uh, Jay Crowder was in the negatives too. <laughs> Which is another another good yeah. for this too. Yeah, <laughs> but but um, Rozier, yeah, certainly his calling card is defense. That's one of the reasons why the Celtics took him at number sixteen this year. It's because of his ability to defend not just point guards but guys who are bigger than him. Because he's got, he's a strong player for his age, only 21 years old. He's got a strong frame. I think he could eventually defend twos, and maybe the Celtics, if they play super small ball in the future, and Rozier's in his prime, maybe he can defend some bigger threes, some six four players. So he's a versatile defender. He's fast. He's strong. He's instinctual. So negative zero point one or zero point two. Sorry, in Rozier's rookie year does seem a little bit low considering the fact that he was a very, very good defender at Louisville for two years under Rick Pitino. And he, I mean, even when he came out, and I know obviously these models are based on what we see in the summer league and preseason and stuff like that, but he's come out and he's looked really good on the ball, at least while he's been out there. And it's and obviously his, his hustle and all that kind of stuff isn't really going to get measured by these models, but he shows me somebody that can read pick and rolls. He can smother guys when they don't have the ball. And I, I mean, I like his potential to come in there in, as a defensive stopper, at least for a few minutes a night. For sure. Um, I like to compare it to like the Phil Pressy role. I mean, may, I mean, he's not going to play a lot as a rookie, but maybe he can be the type of guy who comes in for a seven-minute stretch and changes the tone of the game, like Pressy did sometimes last year. And if anything, Rozier could be an upgrade over Pressy because so far he's shooting the ball really, really well from three, both off the catch and off the dribble. So if he can, if he can be the type of guy that comes up off the bench plays with that energy and that enthusiasm that Danny Ainge talked about during their introductory press conference this summer, then they have a guy that they can use in year one as an impactful player in smaller doses. So his shooting is phenomenal right now, and mm. I, I'm kind of shocked by it. As I, was just, I was just watching the uh, Real Madrid game right before you we went on, and he was taking shots where he was stroking them with such little effort. I couldn't believe it. And they were like... The, they were they were the kind of three balls where that Paul Pierce used to do a lot, where it hits the back rim at a perfect angle that the net doesn't even move, the ball is swinging, <laughs> it doesn't even move, and it's like so beautiful to watch. And mm. I mean, his his stroke looks so phenomenal. He had a different type of shot where he's more of a set shooter rather than a high elevation shooter like the other guys, small guys on this team. And it was very unique and interesting to watch. I I just I couldn't believe how comfortable his stroke was. Yeah, that's for sure. I, I thought he was a pretty good spot up shooter. 
in college, but off the dribble, I really didn't like him off the dribble. I was kind of worried that he would be forever a bad off the dribble shooter because some guys are, they just don't improve. But in a granted, it's a small sample. He's done it consistently over an extended period of time. He did it this summer for the Celtics on the summer league team. And he's doing it now in preseason. And I assume he probably did it through workouts because his draft stock rose and if he continues it during the season, well, he's one of those guys where in year one, maybe we just miss something because sometimes you just you can't see it in college. A guy just has intangibles and he improves. And right now, we're, like you said, he's just swishing shots. They're not clanking off the rim. They're just, boom, the net's not moving. And that's a good sign, I think, for him going forward because if he can hit shots off the catch, great. If he can hit shots off the dribble, oof, Celtics could have a really nice point guard on their hands. They could have a guy that would make sense to take at the 16th pick after all, right? Yeah, that's for sure. He, he might. They might have a guy that would make sense to take in the top 10. I mean, to have, to have a rookie that can shoot the ball comfortably is like a, is like a massive victory from a draft perspective. I mean, it's so, yeah, yep. even, even great. I mean, I wonder, I haven't seen Devin Booker play yet this, uh, this preseason, but I'm sure he's going to look good, but He's like he was like the sharpest shooter coming to this draft, and RJ Hunter was too. And I think Rozier looks like he's shooting with more confidence and comfort than at least Hunter is. Well, he's certainly a confident player, Terry. Uh, he wasn't afraid to take the big shots at the end of the game for Louisville. Sometimes he would actually shoot them out of games because he was so willing to be the guy, and he would take shots that you shouldn't take. Because I mean, he he even said in college that. He likes to model his game after Dwayne Wade. And if you watch him game, I mean, yeah, you, it, oh, we, la- like we, we laugh yeah. at it, but it's true. I mean, I mean, he clearly idolizes Dwayne Wade, the way he changes speeds, the way he shoots off the dribble from mid-range. He clearly likes Wade. And I think he said maybe it was during media day or some video I saw in an interview online. He said, oh, now I can't be like Wade. I'm in the NBA now. But he was saying it in a way like, oh, now it's time for me to be a professional. Now it's time for me to do what my coaches tell me to do, to be a better passer, to pass first, to take efficient shots. And that was really my main concern with him heading into the draft was, will this guy ever be someone that a coach can trust to make the right play? And so far, it's early, but he's doing it. And I think that's very encouraging going forward. All right, well, then there's another rookie that I think is going to be earning that trust, and this is the last guy we'll talk about is R.J. Hunter. His IQ is phenomenal. He is so goddamn smart out there. It's it's just beautiful to watch. Mm-hmm. I know that, uh, let's see, what do they have him compared as? I th- It was uh, Kevin Martin, who is a guy I think in a, I think at first glance would make sense. They look similar in their build and their shooting and, and their dribbling ability, but and I, this isn't to blow up R.J. Hunter as, like, this phenomenal prospect or anything. No, we can blow him up. It's okay. okay. <laughs> as far as his overall IQ, passing ability, playing style, dribbling, I'm thinking Manu Ginobili. And okay. it would mm-hmm. take – it would that would be, like, the absolute peak of his – that would be if everything goes phenomenally for R.J. But he is so smart. He is so in control. And everything just looks slowed down for him. And he's he's good at he's actually a pretty solid athlete. His stroke is effortless. He, I feel like he can shoot from anywhere. It's not like his stroke is good when he squares up from three point range. I mean, he's he's the kind of guy that he can throw all sorts of shots up there. But he's he work he works hard, and the relentlessness I think will develop. But his IQ is just so great. I really think that he could be a Manu Ginobili type player, which would be that's the ultimate player to have in the modern NBA. Really, that's for sure. Um. 
it always makes me happy when I see tweets from fans or whoever else saying, whoa, what a pass by R.J. Hunter. I didn't know he could pass like that because it's like, hey, he his dad said before the draft, R.J. is just as good of a passer as he is a shooter. He might even be a better passer. And you watch Georgia State play, ball is in his hands a lot. He did a whole lot more than just shoot the ball, especially his junior year. He's a very, very good passer. And I think Scalabrini said it during the broadcast on Thursday's game that most rookies come into the league and they can't make simple pocket passes, but RJ's coming off screens and he's hitting it right in the pocket of the big man rolling towards the rim. Perfect timing, and it's there for them to be able to get the ball and go right up to the rim. And RJ is only 22. And I think that's why we're seeing Stevens trust him so much early. He's been the first rookie in the game in both games, I, th- I think. Yeah, Pretty sure in right. both he was the first. And he's played, I think, over 10 minutes per game. That's kind of a lot for for a rookie this early in the preseason when they need to try to integrate the main 10 guys. But maybe RJ is that 11th guy or that 12th guy in the rotation, and he could be knocking on the door of playing time because we saw Stevens last year give Gigi a chance late in the year. Six-minute stretch. If you're hitting shots, you're going to play. So if, R- if the Celtics need scoring, maybe RJ comes into the game and they run some plays for him to hit three, to, <clears throat> to hit some threes. And if he does, might play the second half. So we'll see. I think he's got a chance to carve out a role. He might even do, I mean, at a, probably a lesser uh, minutes rate, but he could do a lot of the stuff that Evan Turner was doing last year. He's got the he's got the handle, although it'll have to develop more, and he's got the vision. He could be a guy that they mm. could even put him in pick and roll at times, or they could just try to run. They could run dribble handoffs to allow him to run a quick pick and roll. There's a That's lot a of potential point. for him, even in his rookie year, to be a focal point in the playmaking part of, this, of the game, rather than just being a corner shooter that can for kind sure. of curl out to the ring to the wing, or you can cut back door. I mean, he he looks like somebody that can right away be involved in the playmaking process. Yeah, that, that's a really good point about Turner. He's definitely, I mean, if you do stick him in a corner, he's a better corner three-shooter than Turner. Um, something people are worried about with Hunter is his defense. But if he's playing, I don't know, let's just say it's a night where he plays seven-minute stretch in both halves, 14 minutes. What are the chances that he's on the floor at the same time that a guy's really going to burn him? He's going to be playing mostly against backups. So... I don't really worry about him getting exploited as much man-to-man because he's so good off-ball as a defender. He doesn't really make many mistakes. He makes rookie mistakes. We can't forget that he's a rookie. But he's not getting burnt. He's not ball-watching. He's not helping when he shouldn't help. He's been... I mean, he's a coach's son. It's kind of a cliche, but he's a smart player. He's got a high IQ on both ends. I think Stevens can trust him to play off-ball. And I don't think he's going to get burned too often man-to-man. And if he is, well, you take him out. And you put back in Crowder, who can lock that guy down. That's right. All right, so before we go, anything you want to plug for us real quick? Um, just you can give me a follow on Twitter if you like, uh, at Kevin O'Connor NBA. I enjoyed being on the show. And you, you will like it when you follow him on Twitter. And you you have an Instagram too that you use every once in a while, right? So you can follow you there. Not often. Instagram's not my thing, but it's – uh, at Kevin Michael O'Connor, if you'd like to see my concert pictures and stuff. That's about all I put on there. That's right, Most sports stuff. <laughs> Kevin's a must-follow on Twitter. With If you're a Celtics fan or an NBA fan, you can find him writing. Just go to his Twitter bio where everything is there. But he's writing for SB Nation, Celtics blog, Vantage Sports, About.com, 
working over at Comcast Sportsnet. Kevin, uh, probably one of the best hairs in the game and one of the best people in the game as well. Thank you for joining us here on Celtics. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Jared. All right, it's time for Around the NBA in 5, which is brought to you, as always, by American Farmers Network. A consumer should know where their food comes from and the standards that should be adhered to. And American Farmers Network meats are produced by the network of small family farmers who are committed to the most natural and compassionate approach to ranching. Their production standards go above and beyond even USDA regulations, and all of their certified organic beef is 100% grass-fed. From poultry to pork, and of course beef, AFN's family ranchers are committed to providing you and your family with the healthiest, most nutritious meat so you can live the healthy lifestyle in which you have a right to. So what are you waiting for? Log on to AmericanFarmersNetwork.com and eat and live healthy today. And now let's go around the NBA in five. So first off, we have to talk about the Tavocephalosha trial. So Tavocephalosha had his leg broken while being arrested by police in New York City. He is a black man, and black victimization by police and brutality has obviously been one of the most important civil rights issues in this country for a few years now. And this story got so, such little airtime, it was kind of shocking. And after Deflategate was treated as if it was a murder trial, as if it was Hernandez's trial, for God's sakes. The Cephalosha trial got no coverage at all from the major media outlets. The New York Times, which isn't really even regarded as a sports outlet, was the one that was really giving it the most coverage from a national perspective. And Bomani Jones at ESPN uh, gave a phenomenal diatribe, and you should definitely listen to it. And he's obviously someone that can actually speak from the position and speak with authority on the matter. I can just say from my point of view that I was disappointed and appalled by, I mean, ESPN is the one that really is the, that gets the focal point of all this. But the fact that the Cephalosha trial was kind of swept under the rug by a lot of major media outlets was disappointing because it was a great opportunity for an important political cause and an important sports story to intercede each other and to be one story, which very rarely happens. And the fact that it didn't get the coverage it deserved, the fact that Cephalosha was vindicated on this, it should be, um, uh, and the fact that he's probably going to counter to the state, uh, the city or the state of New York, uh, should be getting a lot more coverage. Yet, I just it just doesn't seem to be getting the coverage that it deserves, and it's a shame. And it needs to be improved. And I'm glad that we at least have this outlet here to quickly talk about it. It was an unfortunate and a crime that happened to Cephalosha. He was victimized. And his employer was also victimized. And he is, certainly seems to have grounds for a lawsuit in the future. I hope that he's able to find justice in this case. Because he was... He was what happened to him happens to many people all the time. And very few people have the resources and the power and the profile that he has to be able to actually get to find justice for it. And hopefully this won't be a problem in the future, but unfortunately we know that it's going to continue to be a problem for a long time until meaningful change happens across the country. Now on a brighter note, I'm excited to see Paul George play the four. Uh, this this league has gravitated more and more and more towards skilled 6'7 through 6'9 guys that are thinner playing the four position Paul George is just the ultimate player for this. He is six foot nine, maybe even six foot ten at this point, 
He's strong, but he's a wiry, wiry, super athletic guy. He's like, he could be the ultimate stretch forward because I think he'll be able to defend a lot of power forwards and he can go back to the basket. He can face up in the post, in the high post at least. He's someone that just has the skill set and the size to be the future of the four position. Obviously, LeBron James is the ultimate power, uh, the ultimate stretch four, uh, but no one else has really replicated what LeBron has, at least at a level similar to what LeBron has done. And Paul George could be the next one, and it looks like he's going to play the four in Indiana. He's not exactly excited about it, it appears, but I think it's something that he'll grow into because he'll see that it might be harder for him defensively possibly, but when he's getting, when, when he's the stretch four and he's facing a team that has a classic power forward that can't keep up with them, he's going to toast them. He's going to be shooting over them, blowing by them. He is going to be such a terror and he's going to do for the four position what Dirk Nowitzki once did. And I really hope that happens. And you know, we're going to see that in Toronto with Demar, uh, with Damari Carroll filling a similar role. Carroll's not the offensive player that Paul George is, but he's a, he's a similar type of player. And Jay Crowder is probably going to be doing it a lot for Boston. It's something that I've been focusing on when in kind of my various season preview discussions is Jay Crowder should be playing the four a lot for this team. And they have a lot of talented fours, and so it's not going to happen that often, but he's a great fit to be that kind of guy. I know he's only about 6'6", maybe 6'7 on a good day, uh, but he's so tough, he's so strong, and he could dribble the ball, but he can also hold his own down low, you know, fighting in the trenches. He's going to be a great player for this type of role. And then lastly, the war on wards between Kevin Durant and uh, Stephen A. Smith has just been phenomenal so far. You know, Kevin Durant has taken a very adversarial approach against the media ever since the Oklahoman put up that uh, put up Mr. Unreliable headline. And, I mean, I understand where he's coming from there, but it's it's gone a little overboard. But he picks Stephen A. Smith as his target, and there's just no easier target in sports than Stephen A. Smith. Whether or not you like him, you have to admit that he is an absolute pain in the ass, blowhard. And he may have his sources, but he's one of the least consistent and reliable reporters that I can think of in the game. So, good for you, Kevin, but maybe stop attacking every single person with a microphone. So that's going to do it for this week's edition of Celtics Beat. Music for Celtics Beat was provided by Will Rock, Chuck Dietz, Astrovex, and Steph Legrato. Be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is Celtics underscore Beat. My Twitter handle personally is at CLNS underscore Jared Weiss. You can like Celtics Beat on CLNS Radio on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Celtics Beat to keep up with the show like to thank our guest Kevin O'Connor as well as our sponsors Linda, Audible, Casper, Harry's, and American Farmers Network for making this all possible for our staff writer Eddie Santiago, program director Nick Gelso, executive producer Larry H. Russell. I am Jared Weiss. LHR will be back next week for another edition of Celtics Beat exclusively on CLNS Radio. Take us out of here, Kansas. <laughs>